Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alpha. I'm Ben. I'm Stephen. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we asked Ben Walker about what the polling says about the impact of the number 10 parties on Boris Johnson and the Conservatives' reputation. And then you asked Ben your polling questions, including how popular is Keir Starmer really? Thanks so much for coming back to the New Statesman podcast, Ben. Nice to have you on again. Thank you for having me. So we're really putting you through your paces at the moment because we're recording on a day when yet more stories about parties in Downing Street have been revealed. So the latest is that there's there's been parties on the eve of Prince Philip's funeral. And I think last time we spoke to you about the number 10 sort of party scandal, it was before Christmas. And obviously, a lot of stories have come out since then. And we're recording on the Friday, this podcast will be coming out on the Monday. So who knows what more parties might have been revealed over the weekend and polling too. But can you tell us whether or not, you know, are the polls getting even worse for the Prime Minister and for the Conservative Party with each new story that comes out? Yeah. So again, thanks for having me. Let's start with the overall voting intentions. So at the moment, according to our poll tracker available on the New Statesman website, the Tories Labour have a lead of six points over the Tories. Some polls show it to be more 11 points, 10 points. The shift is quite sudden now. You're seeing that the collapse in, in, in Tory confidence. Now, a few podcasts ago, I think one I said a month ago and two months ago, was that much of the Tory fall in the polls is because those that voted Tory in 2019 are now saying they would go undecided. That hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. It's just got a little bit worse. The numbers saying they'd vote Labour's between like four or five, sometimes 8% on the odd poll, but really it's sticking closer to four or 5%. The numbers saying they would go Lib Dem, a little bit less than that. Numbers saying they'd go Reform, around about 6%. It really is just down to the Tory base the Get Brexit Done Brigade, if you want to call it that, built by Boris Johnson, now losing enthusiasm for Boris Johnson. The thing is, I said national polls, Labour have a lead of six points. In the marginals that matter, in the seats that are key, you know, the ones that will decide the next election, the Tories are doing worse. So we're mm. talking about, I don't, I don't want to use it, I'm not going to use it, but I'm going to say Red Wall. In those seats that, that Labour lost, the Tories are polling worse. Boris Johnson's own favourability is polling worse. And this is key because about in 2019, 2020, 2021, Johnson was doing much better in the marginals than the country at large. And that's why the Tories did so well. Now he's doing worse in those marginals than the country at large. It really, his personal reputation, his personal image just going down the plug hole, really. 
The big question, I suppose, is you have explained in previous episodes that often these polling leads for Labour are actually explained by a collapse in support for the Tories, but not really so many direct switches. Are we seeing um, any more of that? Yeah, it, 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 it hasn't really changed. I don't, to the budding Labour activists listening, don't get out yet. Don't pop the champagne yet, really. It's, it's nothing to really get excited about. These leads for Labour are fundamentally quite structurally weak because it's based on Tories just staying at home. Okay, Labour is up, no, no doubt about that. They are netting support amongst Lib Dems. They are getting people who didn't vote last time now out to vote, but they are a weak demographic. You can't really trust those samples in polling. It's, like I say, it's a structurally weak lead for Labour. If, for example, all those that said they weren't going to vote Tory, who used to be Tories in 2019, now came back to the Tories, it would be neck and neck. And that's not something to be complacent about. That's just, it's just not. These aren't ideal numbers for Labour. But I did say, yeah, months ago, it was predominantly undecided. It still is now, but I'll, I'll be minded to say it's gone up by about a percentage point or two. So two months ago, it was about 3% Tory voters going Labour. Now it's about 4 or 5%. And if you want to get excited about that, we can. Yeah, just for the, the benefit of, of listeners, what do don't knows usually do? So imagine for a moment that, yeah, there is an election tomorrow, like a six-week election campaign. What would we expect the don't knows to, to do? Would we expect them to stay at home? Would we expect them to revert uh, back to type? Yeah, uh, normally it's, it's normally revert back to type. Here's an example. 2010 to 2015 Parliament was characterised by that Tory base, the coalition built by David Cameron, a lot of it going off to UKIP and a lot of it staying at home. And that's why in the 2013-14 local elections, UKIP did a lot better than polling. It was just because Tory voters were staying at home. Then you had the 2015 campaign and those don't knows really did come back to the Tories in big enough numbers. Similar in 2015 to 17. A lot of those poor Labour showings in the polls under Jeremy Corbyn was because the Labour base was disenchanted. There wasn't much to get excited about. And then the 2017 campaign came along and a lot of those Labour don't knows came back to Labour. So the thing is with these polls is that when you see a lot of the Tory base just losing confidence in Boris Johnson, if we had an election in a few years' time, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those undecideds, those apathetic Tories, came back to the Tory party. But you have to wonder, are we in a situation now where the Tory brand is severely damaged? And are they going to go elsewhere? At the moment, they're not. They need somewhere else to go. They are repulsed by the Tory party, but they're not being enticed by anyone else just yet. That's really interesting because something that we discussed on the previous podcast episode was whether or not this will damage the Tory brand as a whole or whether or not a new leader we discussed Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, I think, would would mean that sort of the reputation would be rehabilitated. So what you're seeing, Ben, is so far the brand hasn't been damaged as much as Boris Johnson has. Yeah, yeah. So but, but, I keep saying Boris's, but it's style guide, isn't it, to say Johnson here, isn't it? I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> Johnson's brand has gone down the plug hole. And, and to reiterate, it's, it's fallen worse in the marginals that matter than the country at large. And in the country at large, it's fallen big time already. The Tory brand has fallen as well but not by as much so here's an example johnson's brand has fallen by about oh what was it i think it was by about 15 percentage points over the past few months the tory party's only fallen by about between five and ten that's quite a big difference but you have to wonder in the marginals that matter the voters that came out for the conservative party to get brexit done party the boris johnson party in 2019 how much of that associated the conservative party with boris johnson 
how much mm. of that is how much does it really matter does the Tory party brand matter to them and I don't know I, 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 I'm minded to think no debatable view that if Boris Johnson goes there is a risk that those types of voters he got out won't be as enthused to come out for say Rishi Sunak because you, you have mm-hmm. Rishi Sunak here is more uh, let, let's beat around the bus the, fa- the favourability he got in 2020 was owing to his response to the coronavirus crisis it was when he introduced fellow and he's not going to be doing that in the future he he is am i, am I right in saying he's a bit of a he's a cameroon isn't he he's more friendly with austerity he's more associated with that wing of the party he's not exactly a johnsonian to the core and that that's what makes me wonder really if he will be singing from the same hymn sheet as boris johnson would to these types of voters and will he be as successful with them i don't know yeah i think it's the the big and interesting question is, and obviously there have been some, there, well, there was one poll of, of, I think, varying levels of uselessness kind of going, you know, how would you feel if you vote, yeah, if the leader were, chain, were changed to Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, Michael Gove? And I wondered what you thought about that poll in, gen, in general. You know, did it, does it tell us anything or, or is it just one of those sort of, here's a hypothetical situation involving one person you've heard of, but who, as you say, you know him from a thing he hated doing and wouldn't want to do again. One person you've heard of who you really hate in the shape of Michael Gove, and then another person in the shape of Liz Truss who no one has heard of. Yeah, yeah. Priors are always helpful. They always tell you in what direction you're going to come from. But it's a bit like Theresa May, I think. She was, I think she polled okay before she became Prime Minister. And then when she became Prime Minister, every Tom, Dick and Harry projected onto her what kind of leader she would be. And so they, they thought she would be brilliant. They thought she'd be amazing. Some Tory MPs called her Mummy May, but we won't probably dwell on that. And it's, it's that kind of thing. Like you, you, Hypothetical polling, I think, can be useful. I made the mistake in 2019 of commissioning some polling myself on hypothetical polling. How would you vote if Brexit was delivered, but it didn't do anything about immigration? How would you vote with all these quite convoluted scenarios? It wasn't accurate at all. It wasn't helpful at all. And I learned that the hard way. I think hypothetical polling is good if it's a basic. If if it's imagine X as leader, but you've got to prompt the status quo in the same way. So at the moment, we have voting intentions, which are like, how would you vote if an election was held tomorrow? Con, Lab, Lib Dem, and so on. If you're going to prompt on a party leader, how would you vote if Rishi Sunak was leader? You then have to ask, how would you vote if Boris Johnson was leader? You've sort of got to standardise it. And we don't really do that in polling, annoyingly. So I hope that answers your question slightly. I'm not sure if it does. The question I have is, this is, okay, this is a story about the Conservative government. But it is also a story that feeds into a bunch of beliefs people have about politicians as a class. What are the things we should be looking out for to see what the kind of impact on this in terms of people's support for anti-system ideas, disillusionment with politics in general? And how do you think that impacts the Labour Conservative battle? So one way to look at as to whether the Labour Party is on its way back to government and whether the Conservatives are done for is, of course, obviously how well they're doing on the economy. And uh, I've said before that Labour's leads are quite weak because they're not winning over Tory voters. But also as a party, they are very structurally weak because they have they are pretty much irrelevant on the economy. And they have been since since the days of Gordon Brown, really. During even during Ed Miliband's days, they only came neck and neck with the Tories and then they collapsed after about 2014. So by the 2015 election, they were. I think it was a 30-point lead for the Tories on the economy. When the polls were narrowed, that is a structural weakness that I don't think we talked about then and we need to start talking about more now. So a a good way to measure is if Labour is on their way back is on the economy. At the moment, they're pretty irrelevant. But about May 2021, last year, 
the Tories were on about trusted by about 40% of the public on the economy. Now it's down to 31%, a nine point fall over the course of what, six, seven, eight months. That's a drift, but it's not going to Labour. Labour hasn't really set out their stall yet or have successfully been able to set up their stall. How many speeches by Keir Starmer on policy? Mm. Let's not count, but it's, they haven't successfully catalyzed public opinion yet. We are on issues of trust, general populist metrics on are they all the same and that kind of stuff. That's rising. That, that's going back up. I think during the expenses, what we're we seeing now, I remember reading a study, I think it was from British Social Attitudes, which showed that disaffection of our politicians now is higher than it was in the aftermath of the expenses scandal. Mm-hmm. That's significant. That That is key. How much of that is associated with Boris Johnson? I would say quite a big chunk. And how much of that is filtering through to the Labour Party? And how many voters are now saying, well, Labour, well, Labour you're just the same as the Tories. You're going to do, you'd do it as well, wouldn't you? And I have, a, have an odd inclination that that people are, voters are feeling that. Can I also ask you, Ben, a piece of wisdom, who knows whether it's accurate or not, that people often quote in politics is that people don't vote for a divided party. Do you think that there's any truth in that? I think so, yeah. I, I, I was having, I was... I've got, I'm lucky enough to have some books from the 70s when I was able to see like, is that, is that true? And partly, but not always. So in the 1970s, during the chaos of, supposed chaos of the Callaghan years, you had the Tory party being perceived as quite divided. It was a division between the monetarism of Mrs. Thatcher and the more realities of life, as one one sh- uh, shadow cabinet minister called it. And the, and the public saw that. The public saw quite a divided Tory party. After all, Thatcher had unseated Edward Heath. But that didn't really get in the way of them winning the 1979 election, really. The Labour Party back then was seen as quite united. Then I feel like this idea that, that divided parties always lose elections is quite more recent. It's based on the sleaze and Europe of 1997. It's based on the divisions of the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. And it's also based on, I suppose, 2010, Gordon Brown losing the confidence of a fair chunk of his parliamentary party. These all make sense. And I imagine they are contributing towards the general impression of the party. But I don't think that it's like, if you are divided, you will lose the election. I think it adds to it. I think it adds to a general impression of what your party is. It's mixed. We're looking at a divided Conservative Party in a different way now. Or the, I suppose most Conservative MPs are united in feeling quite angry with Boris Johnson. We're looking at it from that perspective, but even before, around those votes on COVID measures, for example, Boris Johnson couldn't get the numbers to pass regulations without the votes of Labour. Are divisions like that damaging? Maybe it's difficult to drill down into what exactly is driving polling performances, but if there are lots of Conservative MPs voting against that, but the government is bringing them in anyway. Is that damaging? Or actually, does it mean that there are people within the Conservative Party serving different interests of their voter coalition and it it doesn't have an impact? We can use some historical examples here. Gay marriage, 2013, I think it was, the vote to introduce it in the Commons. I think the plurality, the majority of the Tory parliamentary party didn't vote for it. But, But regardless of whether it was majority or didn't, 
it was a split party, wasn't it? And it allowed, I would say, it allowed the media to cover the party as split. It allowed UKIP to play a part in speaking to those voters who were opposed to gay marriage and winning them over. I, I think when you have a divided party, it allows a vacuum to exist. It allows a vacuum of ideas, a, a, a debate to occur amongst your media-friendly sites to have that argument, and which can, I suppose, exacerbate that division. But I think in the case of like votes on COVID restrictions, I think it... I think there's a risk of it being too convoluted for voters. I'm not sure, really. You invite your supposed polling expert on and your polling expert is saying, I don't know. Sorry about that. No, we, we appreciate your honesty, Ben, because we know that you're one of the most accurate poll watchers out there. So uh, I know we spoke about I know we spoke about snap polling last time we had you on and you said these mm. very impulsive decisions after big sort of big news stories or big events. But I noticed and you probably saw it. Savanta Comrez had another snap poll after the bring your own booze party story um, came out, which said two thirds responded that the Prime Minister should resign and that was up 12 points from the number who said he should resign in the wake of the Christmas party story. Does that mean more and more people are wanting Boris Johnson to resign or is it just that sort of impulsive, angry response um, that snap polling can bring up? Ooh, it, it can be both. I think it can be both because what you're seeing, yeah, you have Savannah Comrez, 66% saying Johnson should resign. You have focal data, new kids on the block. They mm-hmm. say 64% should resign. That includes a plurality of Tory voters and 54% of Leaf voters. This is, yeah, snap polling. Always remember, it's taken in the immediacy of something. It shows a more impulsive attitude from the public. It's not often representative of the long-term decision-making Take budgets, for example. The 2012 budget was, was 2012 Omnishambles? I think it was. Yeah. The 2012 budget was initially received all right. It was okay. And then after the odd spate of media coverage about pasty tax, public opinion crystallized into complete and utter opposition, right? So you need a few days of, of this to happen. But Savanta Commerce showing 66% up, what was it, 12 points? 12 points, that, that, that is a sign that this type of sleaze is easier for people to understand. It's not Matt Hancock. It's not an advisor. It's not a leg strategy. It's Boris Johnson. It's one of the most recognised politicians in the country. His name, his reputation is being staked on this now. Not everyone else. Not this convoluted story about Downing Street and, and curtains and all that. It's very straight to the point. And that, so whilst always bear in mind, snap polling can be impulsive, the high figures do show a public who are, they, they know what they're looking at. They're not stupid. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. From The New Statesman's World Review comes Battle for the Soul of America, a three-part series that examines the first year of Joe Biden's presidency. We did it. We did it, Joe. You're going to be the next president of the United States. <laughs> I'm your host, Emily Tampkin, and I'll be joined by expert guests to examine how President Biden's core campaign pledges have held up, specifically foreign policy. We've seen a huge change of tone and rhetoric in the relation between the United States and Europe. Uh, the administration does not call the EU a foe. Immigration. I think a lot of people who were opposing Trump's policies, you know, most obviously the separation of the children at the border, I think may also find it very uncomfortable that they might be complicit in electing someone who is now keeping those policies in place. And voting rights. Just search for World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask, Ask Ben. ben. So although I'm aware I'm in a glass house on this one, and I think the only person to make more confident comments about the Liberal Democrats' inability to win North Shropshire than you, Ben, was me. But (laughs) you made a lot of confident comments about the Liberal Democrats' inability to win North Shropshire. And one of our listeners is asking, why should we trust anything you have to say going forward? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll hold my hands up. Uh, this is not the uh, worst prediction I've made. I've made a few bad ones before, but hear me out. Okay. So North Shropshire, rural, quite, it, it has rising levels of rural deprivations. It voted leave by 60% in 2016. It is demographically not that Lib Demi. It's not your traditionally Lib Dem seat. It's, it's not particularly affluent, not many graduates, not particularly young, and not particularly mobile either. A lot of people not rely on public transport in the slightest there, right? These, this is not blue wall. I hate the term. I, I really should stop using it, but everyone understands what it means, right? Or at least we try to pretend we know what it means it's not blue wall and th- th- that kind of exposes how big the success of the Lib Dems winning it was okay so if we wound ourselves back to say 2005-43 and had the Liberal Democrats of then fighting this election I would have been very confident they would have won it but we had the Lib Dems of just post-Brexit cont- contesting the seat that, that's a completely different kettle of fish I was under the impression that they that their, their appeal was consigned to culture war, you know, the, the remain voting populace of the country. And for them to, you know, break through in this type of seat exposes how brilliant it was. And it, and it exposes as well, normal times are back, boom, times are back for the Lib Dems. They can be the protest vote again. Nature is returning and all that. It's That's not what we were seeing in Cheshire and Amersham. Blue wall seat, affluent, EU friendly seat. North Shropshire wasn't that. It's all, I can hold my hands up and say I was wrong, but I was wrong for hopefully understandable reasons. I think, sort of, and I promise we're not, this isn't only going to be about North Shropshire, but the really interesting thing about it, uh, I think, Lisa, is exactly as you say, This, if you wanted to design, although it's technically only the 70th safest Conservative seat, in terms of various demographic factors, it is probably in the top 20, right? I don't think anyone seriously in the Liberal Democrats uh, expects that they will hold North Shropshire come an election, even if there were 50 Liberal Democrat MBs after the next election, they would not expect Helen Morgan to be one of them. But do you, obviously the Liberal Liberal Democrats have a fantastic by-election machine, they are experts in parliamentary by-elections, you know, they do very well, but this is even better than them, you know, this wasn't them eking out a narrow win with their machine, as they did in Brecon and Radnorshire, say, this the Conservatives got shellacked. One of the, the hints that something was not quite right in the polls in 2010 to 2015 was the Labour Party underperforming what the polls would expect in by-elections and in council elections. 
Do you think that there is anything interesting about how the Conservative Party performed in North Shropshire, given its safeness, the relative difficulty for the Liberal Democrats of winning the seat? Do you think it is just the Liberal Democrats are back, baby, wolf howl, they're good again? <laughs> Thank you for that wind tweet there. I, I, I'm, minded to, I'm minded to say what happened in North Shropshire with the Tory vote, a lot of it stayed at home. And a lot of it were being berated by God knows how many Lib Dem leaflets and others that this was a referendum of Boris Johnson. Let's not forget, this sleaze has been going for a few months now. These Labour leads have been going since, when did it start? About mid-November? Yeah, it's been going for that long. We are seeing a Tory party in freefall since then. And so in North Shropshire, we saw a lot of their votes staying home. We saw, I think I remember during the count, you had some rural areas come in that were traditionally safe for the Tories. And at the time, there was a bit of a some gobsmacked Tory activists because they just recognised their vote hadn't come out, even though they were pretty reliant on it. So with all that in mind, I really do think North Shropshire just shows a Tory party that just didn't turn out. And it is totally dis- disaffected with the election at hand. And the Lib Dems, they're not associated well. To a lot of voters, they're associated with Brexit. To, to remain voters, they're associated with Brexit. But I imagine to a fair few of us, North Shropshire exposes, I would say, that they are now quite a neutral protest party. I, I think, uh, yeah. So in answer to your question, yeah, boom, times are back. That's so interesting. We have another question from a listener uh, who asks, Keir Starmer's approval ratings seem to be wildly different depending on what pollster you're looking at. In some, he's tracking David Cameron, and in some, he's starting to sink to Corbyn levels of unpopularity why would that be, do you think? And which is the truer picture? Yeah, for about, I don't know, about a year or so now, more people have disliked Keir Starmer than liked him, in public polling at least. Did I say year? Probably about since about March, April time. And much of that has been down to his own base, all those who voted Labour in 2019 pre- being pretty nonplussed about him. You have about, in some polls, you have about a third of Labour's own supporters saying, do you like, do you like him? And most people <laughs> say, nah, not really. <laughs> no, it doesn't really excite me. You have, curiously enough, in some polls, when Stan was doing really well at the start of his leadership, you had more Lib Dems, uh, sorry, more Lib Dems as a share of the Lib Dems saying they liked Starmer than Labour supporters, which I found quite a bit weird. You do you, Lib Dems. It, it's, yeah, so what, we were, what, what the question is getting at, like we're seeing variation in polling, right? So you're seeing some... <laughs> where Starmer's doing as well as Cameron and he's now doing as bad as Corbyn. Bit of variation, like I say, probably for the reasons of how Pulse has sampled the Labour base, because that's where the variation is coming from. How unified is the Labour base behind Starmer? We, it, it, there's a bit of uh, difference. There's a bit of difference there. But on Starmer himself, I would be minded to think we... The New Statesman have been running a tracker on how does Starmer compare with previous Labour leaders? And generally speaking, he's done better than Jeremy Corbyn and Ed Miliband. So every politician, I think Stephen's uh, talked about this before, every politician, you are introduced to the public like you. The public project their feelings onto you. The public want you to be the best things in sliced bread. And then you actually exist as a human being who disappoints half the public. And you fall down, you collapse. Starmer's trended downwards. Miliband trended downwards very quickly. Corbyn was already down and kept trending downwards. And then he came back again for the 2017 election. Every politician goes downward. Cameron, the the comparison with Cameron, I think is key. And I think we forget David Cameron because we associate him now as the successor of 2010. Let's not forget, he he wasn't doing particularly well in 06. He wasn't doing particularly well at the start of 07. 
okay? And at, at that time, you had about a third to sometimes even 40% of the public not really having much of an opinion about him. That sounds familiar because today you have about a third to sometimes, well, it's currently 34% of the public don't have an opinion on Keir Starmer. At the start of his leadership, David Cameron didn't impress much of the public. He didn't really leave much of a mark. Some people uh, were writing him off, writing this Tory modernizer off as a failed project. And and you see it the same with the Labour Party today. Some people are writing Keir Starmer's attempts mm. to to detoxify the Labour Party off, you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I really think the comparison with Cameron is completely valid and it's justified. And he, Starmer at this moment in time is trending Cameron, doing mm. a little bit worse in some polling, again, because of the Labour base, uh, Labour base sample thing. But I think he's closer to Cameron than he is to Corbyn. Or Miliband, but of course Corbyn and Miliband were losers, so that doesn't say much, does it? Starmer, <laughs> in many ways, is an analyst's dream. In the his performance, it feels to me, is exactly at the right level to test so many theories I have yeah. about voter behaviour. And it's like this thing where occasionally it looks like he's doing a bit better or worse. It's like no, 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 don't spoil the lab- laboratory experiment. You just need to keep on as you are because it's so. It's one of those things where I think we will either discover like a new baseline or we say it's, he will absolutely, he, he does feel like he's absolutely bumping around at the level which, yeah, he, he is either at the floor or immediately below it. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. You look at approval of him, the number of Brits who think, he, they, think they have a positive view of him. At the moment, according to our tracker, it's 30%. Six months ago, it was 28%. But it hasn't really shifted. It's only gone up by two points. That's nothing. That's so flat. It's non-existent. You, you have these Labour leads in the polls. Six points. Keir Starmer now, according to our tracker, leads Boris Johnson, who will be the preferred prime minister. But in terms of public approval, he has seen very little, very little change. He's just been a bit of a non-entity, non-existent with the public. He hasn't impressed, to reiterate, 34% of the public. That's big. That's big. These leaders of the opposition, they're meant to turn people off or turn people on. Starmer's not doing that. And I wonder if it will change come the next election. You just have to wonder how it's going to go. So, yeah, it is going to be a wonderful experiment. Looking forward to it. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray, Stephen Bush and Ben Walker. We're produced by Adrian Bradley and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review.